As you're uh, passing those baskets, you can go ahead and uh, grab your uh, Bibles if you have them and open to Luke chapter 18. Surprise, surprise, back in Luke. So keep working our way through thinking, if there are any more chapters left? Yes, there are. So um, we're going to look at Luke 18 this morning and take some time uh, to look at another encounter Jesus has, uh, interestingly enough, not, not with a religious leader, which is a lot of what we've been walking through over the last uh, few months together is when religious leaders ask questions they really shouldn't ask. They get answers they really don't want to hear, but it's great teaching for you and I to understand. So this morning, as we look at Luke 18, what we're going to discover, verse 18 to verse 30, is Jesus has an encounter with a man who's not unlike you and I. And the question that he asks is a question that many people don't have the guts to ask, but it's the question that all of us want to ask. And so uh, so before we talk about the specifics of it, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and read the, the encounter that Jesus has with this man and then draw some things about the concept of Jesus and being good and what that means for our lives. So starting in verse 18, Luke 18, it says, A certain ruler asked him, again, this encounter with Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was, a very, he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who can, that, who can be saved then? Jesus replied, what is possible with men is, is was impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, "We have left all we had to follow you." Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, "No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life." Another amazing encounter that Jesus has with the person that we can learn from. So I want you just to picture this scenario. So Jesus, again, out in public, encountering people. This young man, we know from other stories, who's wealthy, and, and obviously probably most people know who he is, comes to this encounter with Jesus and asks the question, the big question. Now think about what's happening. In that day and age, people had heard about Jesus. They had heard about this amazing man who's come, who's talking about the kingdom of God. He's healing people. And when he speaks, he speaks with far more authority than they've ever heard before. So people are flocking to him. And because he's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about things that have to do with another life or eternal life beyond this world. So the question that everybody asks is, how do I get to the next life? How do I get to eternal life? That's the question that everybody wanted to know, which was a great question. But as we see in the story, you can tell that he was asking the question, thinking he knew the answer. Thinking that he was going to ask the question, Jesus was going to answer the way he wanted to, and then he would look great in front of everybody. But even though he displayed this great sense of righteousness, Jesus still looked into his heart and, re and he realized there was still something that he lacked. Because what this man had that many of us have is he had the concept of being good down. He figured out how to live good. But what Jesus was getting at was not about the goodness that he had somehow accomplished, 
but what was behind that at the heart of what, what he needed to surrender in his life. And so with that understanding this morning, I want to begin with just a, a few thoughts on this concept of when we shift our minds into being good, which means living out the moral code and somehow checking off the boxes of being good, that somehow God will notice me and I'll get eternal life because someday God will look at me and say, hey, you're a good person. Come and join me in eternity. We, we don't articulate that. We don't say that. But sometimes we live our lives that way. That's the way this man was living his life. And when you and I shift to that mode, we have to ask this question. Is this good enough? Is my life good enough in order to inherit eternal life, to guarantee something in the future? Now, obviously, most if you've been in church, you go, well, no, you can never be good enough. But that still doesn't stop us from trying to live a good life, thinking somehow God's going to bless us or give us eternal life because I'm better than the person next to me or I'm better than my neighbor or I'm just good enough. So three things drawn out of this, three statements that I want us to look at. Start in verse 18 and 19. The first one is this. Is it good enough when I acknowledge a good God? So it says, particularly verse 19, so the, the young ruler says, good teacher. He says to Jesus, you're good. And then Jesus says, well, who's really good but God? There's this acknowledgement that only God is good. So this man acknowledges a good God in front of him. That's pretty amazing that he can acknowledge that Jesus is good. Nobody else is good except God. So in a sense, what he's admitting to is that this wise teacher, this miracle worker, this guy who's talking about the kingdom of God is good because he's God. That's profound. We all wish that we could somehow get people to acknowledge that Jesus is God. That he acknowledges this good God, but is it enough? I want you just to think for a moment in our culture. The majority of people that live near you, the majority of people that live in our culture, are just like this man. They would acknowledge, most people would acknowledge, there is a God. There's a very small fraction that would claim to be atheists in their thinking, which there is no God. But there's the large proportion of our culture that says there is a God and you watch TV and you read magazines and you go on the Internet. And there this there is this acknowledgement that there is this God. And somehow, even though things don't go the way that I want them to, he's somehow benevolent and he's good. And we try to figure that out when bad stuff happens. And so we see him mentioned in movies like, you know, when people reference the big guy upstairs, you know, concepts like that. There's this acknowledgement in our culture that there's this God. And that somehow, that because there's a God, he should be good. And you think, is that enough? Is that enough for me just to acknowledge that there is a God that somehow is good? That's enough to get me in the door. That's what this guy was thinking. He was saying, he was acknowledging that in public. So everybody would say, okay, I acknowledge that God is good. But is that enough? See, when you start to read more about Jesus and you start to encounter him, you start to realize that when you get to know Jesus and he gets more specific, he gets very difficult to follow. Because people are very, very uh, positive about Jesus until they get to know him. Because then he starts saying really difficult things. And in, in John chapter 6, actually, Jesus said some really hard things. He said this bizarre phrase. He said this concept. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom. Wow, that's an uplifting message. That is bizarre. And when he said that, listen to what it says in verse 60 of John 6. It says, on hearing it, many of his disciples, people that were following him, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then in verse 66 of that same chapter, chapter says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because Jesus was good as long as he wasn't specific. 
But when he started to get specific about the details of what it meant to really follow this good God, then suddenly people said, oh, wait a second, you were fine when you were just benevolent. You were just good. But now you're getting crazy. You're getting specific. And that's why as you watch this encounter that Jesus has with this guy, Jesus goes from the general law to the specifics of this man's one issue that is the one issue that will cost him everything. And that's, that's for you and I. We need to understand the closer you get to Jesus, the more you find out about him. The more you understand his love and his grace and his mercy, which is really the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. But you also understand that what it really means to follow him, that you and I have to surrender everything to him. We have to be willing to endure hardships and difficulties and walk through seasons where things don't make sense. Because he is a good God and he will prove himself to be good. But just acknowledging that he's good, obviously, is not enough. Second thing, look at verse 20 and 21. Is it good enough that I do good things? So I acknowledge there's a good God, and then I actually do good things in my life. Look at verse 20. It says, uh, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not uh, uh, commit adultery. You shall not murder, not steal, not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Those are great things. And his response is, I've kept all these things. I have taken care of the checklist. I've got it down. I've done all those things since I was a kid. It's interesting. So Jesus references five of the Ten Commandments. So he can give this guy the little checklist that he's working to. And they had to do those. Those five have to do primarily with relationship with people and the way that we interact with people and how we treat people. And he could check off every single one of those and say, yeah, I got it. I got it. It's the checklist. It's like going to Sunday school and you get the little star next to your name because you had the memory verse. It feels so good. But sometimes we never grow out of that mode, and that's the way that we think. That's the way that we function. That if I could just make sure that I check off the moral good list then God will love me and God will invite me into heaven because I am good enough. But the more you and I understand about Jesus, the more that we realize not one of us is good enough. That's why in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, it says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He says, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What was, what was that encounter there? What was that being said for? What was that reference from? It's from God saying to his people, listen, you say really good things and you try to act really well. But if I peel back the layer and I look deep into your heart, your hearts are far away from me. You do really good things, but doing really good things don't necessarily make a difference. See, you and I have to understand to be good enough. You and I have to be perfect. There isn't a sliding scale that somehow when we stand before God, God lines up all of the human beings and he sees how bad and how good people are. And you kind of somehow, you know, you always have the one kid who like blows the scale. You know that kid that can't stand, that doesn't miss anything? Well, there isn't that kid in this world because every person has sinned. And the only way you and I get into heaven is through perfection. That's what good enough is. Good enough is perfection. And so no matter how good we think we are in comparison, because that's usually the way that we rate ourselves. We don't look at the perfection of Scripture or the law and say, okay, let me, how do I measure up? We look at our neighbor. We look at our spouse. We look at our friend. We look at other people in the church. We look at leaders. And as long as we're just enough better, just a little better than the other person, then we feel, okay, anybody want to be honest that you've ever done that before? I have. We, so we justify ourselves. That's like in baseball. You know, when somebody bats over 300 that means they bat 30%. It means, that, it means they get a hit 30% of the time. That means two-thirds of the time they get out. And we applaud that. Wow, 300. That's amazing. 
If you and I stand before God someday and say, hey, I batted 300, God will not be impressed. I'm sorry to break that to you. Because the expectation that God has to enter into the kingdom of heaven is perfection. So I can strive in my life to do really good things and I can try to be a good person and I can try to make morality my ticket into eternity and still come up short because I'm not perfect. And there is a, there is a, a mindset that comes with that that you and I live in daily guilt because we're not good enough and we know we're not good enough. And so we feel that all the time in our lives. We get out of the bed in the morning. What more do I have to do? What more can I do? And it's never enough. Because the standard is perfection, and we can never hit that. But this man thought he was perfect because since he was a little kid, he checked off the list. I'm obeying the law. I'm doing what I'm supposed to. And some of us have lived in that. And the the sad part of that is that is based on law and contract, not love and relationship, which is the whole basis of what Jesus is trying to get at. It's surrendering fully to him in a relationship where we give all to him. So that's the the second thing to consider. Is it good enough? And then the, the third thing. Is it good enough when I live a good life? So in verse 18 and then verse 23, so it says, you know, in verse 18, a certain ruler, and then verse 23 also referenced him, he's a a man of great wealth. And in other passages, other gospels, it tells us that he was young. So this guy was young, hip, cool, wealthy. He was the kind of guy that everybody probably knew who he was. Pretty significant guy. And since he was wealthy and he was a ruler, he had authority. And since he was moral and he kept the law since he was a kid, most people probably knew who this guy was. And they probably looked at him and said, you know, that's the kind of person I would want to be. That's the kind of standard I want to live up to. Because that's why in this public place, he's looking to justify himself even more. To have this good teacher tell me that I've, got an, I've, I've already inherited eternal life because I'm a good person. He's that person. He's that one person saying, boy, I wish I could be more like that person. That standard, because he is living a good life. But was he really living the life that God wanted him to? Was his success enough to get him into heaven? Would somehow, even though the culture was really impressed with him, when he stood before God someday, would God be impressed enough with him for him to enter into eternal life? No, obviously he wouldn't, because he wasn't perfect. And you and I can sometimes live out our life in a way that when we live a moral life and we see some, some wealth in our lives and we see good things happen, not always, but many times you and I need to understand, sometimes we confuse our success with God's blessing. You need to understand that. That if somebody experiences financial success in this life, automatically we default and say, well, God is blessing them. I don't believe that's true. Because sometimes financial success can be a blessing from God that comes not because of our brains and our ability to manage money and our ability to make money, but God gives us that anyway, but because of God's sovereign choice to do so. But how many times do we equate those two things that, boy, if God is really good and I'm living a good life, then I should have the car I want to have, I should have the house I want to live in, the spouse that I want, the job that I want, everything's perfect. And we say, God's blessing me. Now, God could be blessing you, but what happens is we take that as God's seal of approval on our moral life. We do it. As long as I'm a good person, as long as I say good things, as long as I acknowledge a good God, and then God showers me with all the resources that I want to make myself happy. And so God blesses me. We have to be really careful with that kind of mindset. And the reason why is remember last week, remember Luke 16, 
Remember the encounter between the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. See, if you and I were to put the rich man on the stage today and we were to tell you about his wealth and where he lived and all he did, and we somehow he claimed there was a good God and he lived a moral life, you and I would say, God is blessing that man. Now, this is hard to hear, but think about that. If that's true, then why did he end up in hell and the poor man ended up in heaven? Why? I don't necessarily think that his wealth was a result of God's blessing. I think that his result was that he was a successful businessman or he inherited a lot of money. And instead of looking at that resource as a resource from God to give away and bless other people, he looked at it as an opportunity to make himself happy. See, because many people who are very wealthy know that money and success can be as much of a curse as it is a blessing. And so you and I need to understand, if we are being blessed financially by God, and it truly is a blessing, it isn't just for you. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. And this man didn't seem to understand that. That's why when we transition here now from kind of, is it good enough, realizing it's not good enough. Jesus cuts through all the dialogue and he gets to the core of what this man's really dealing with. The one thing in his life that he has to be willing to surrender because it's the one thing that will cost him everything. It's the one thing that keeps his life good. It's the one thing that keeps him living this morally successful life. It's the one thing that has blinded him to the reality of what he really needs. So look at verse 25 or 22 to 25. Because now Jesus, in this encounter, he gets to the core of what's going on in this man's heart. It says, when Jesus heard this, he heard that he had checked off all the to-do list of the good moral life that he had. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who was rich to enter the kingdom of God. You and I need to hear that. And you hear my heart. This is not Pastor John's message against wealth. But I think we've become too enamored with it. Jesus just said, he's using this ridiculous illustration. It's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel that's huge to go this through this little thing, the eye of a needle. Why is he saying that? Because wealth will cost us everything if wealth becomes our focus instead of Jesus. And that's what he was saying to this man. Your wealth is the most valuable and important thing in your life. And that's why I want to spend the rest of our time this morning to talk about money, not the amount of money you have in your bank account or striving to make more money or managing your money or debt and all those things. But really, money is not the core. What money represents is the core. Because for this young man who was wealthy, it's what his money had given to him in his life that he couldn't give up, that he couldn't release, that he couldn't surrender because he knew what it would would mean to him if he had to sell everything, if he had to give everything away. He knew it wasn't just about the physical money that he had to part with. It was all of his lifestyle that he would have to give up. And his response was he was sad because he knew what his wealth represented to him. And so what I want to do is take some time to ask some questions. What was Jesus really asking him? What was Jesus really trying to get at to this man? And remember, I talked about this last week. All of us in this room, if you compare us to the world, we are the rich person. We are the wealthy person. We have more resource than the majority of the world. 
So when Jesus talks about wealth, you and I should perk, our ears should perk up and say, okay, even though I know there's a lot of people that have a lot more money than me, I am considered wealthy in this world, so I need to listen. So the first question that you and I have to come to grips with when it comes to money, what it represents and what Jesus was really asking is, will you surrender your security? This is what Jesus is really asking. Money provides for you and I safety and security. Safety in, in our mind that I have, at least if I have a little, I have a little bit of a safety net that if something bad happens, I'm still going to be okay because I have money to fall back on. And that sometimes becomes the driving force in saving is so that we don't have to be afraid that we'll be without. And so we save, 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 save. Now, I'm not saying the opposite of just, you know, be foolish and don't have any money. But, but what, what I'm talking about is what Jesus is asking is, has the thing that's supposed to provide security for you become money instead of the Savior of the world who can save you from your sin? Not money that can only save you for a little while from your own discomfort becomes that safety net. Have you ever gone through that time where you, you think, if, you know, if I reach this place in life, if I get this much money in the bank, then I'll feel good. Anybody ever had that number? I have. You know, and Dave Ramsey stuff is great, but you know, you have to have emergency fund, you have all these things. And, and honestly, if you get to that point and we get everything just wired perfectly financially, you and I find ourselves at a place where honestly, we don't need God anymore. We don't. Because we have financial security. Let's go back five years ago. Our country thought we were financially secure. Nobody's financially secure. But this young man, and we do this too, we put all of our eggs into one basket. We estimate how much money do I need to retire in a way that will make me happy, safe, secure. And that becomes the driving force in our lives. I know I do that in personal finances, and as a pastor, I'll tell you, I always am concerned. Do we have enough reserve? What if the sky falls? What if people stop giving? What if people don't show up? All these bad things. If we have this much money, then we'll be safe. That's wrong. Because God doesn't give us stuff to stockpile it. He gives us stuff to be generous with it and to have our security lie in Him, not in the money or in our bank account. Second question. Yeah, I know this is not easy. Jesus is not easy. His gift of grace to get into his kingdom is amazing, but what it means to follow him. He wants all of who we are. We sang about it earlier. Second question is, will, are you willing to surrender your comfort? So money provides for you and I a certain level of comfort in the way we live our lives. And that means because we live in a country where wealth is abundant compared to the rest of the world, we have indoor plumbing. We have electric, electricity. Probably 99.9% .9 of us have a television. Probably about 75 to 80% of us have a car. Majority of us have a roof over our head or have access to that. We have food to eat. We have all those things. And that provides a level of comfort in our life that we become accustomed to. Most of us, there's some of us that do, but most of us don't have to think where my next meal is coming from. I know where it's coming from. It's coming from my cupboard or my refrigerator or in and out or jack-in-the-box or wherever you go. You know where it's coming from. There's a level of comfort that comes with that. But I know in my life, and I, I know it's true for all of us, when we reach that level of comfort where we never have to think about the necessities of life any longer because we've somehow taken care of them, it puts us to sleep. 
because there's no drive in us anymore. Because there's no hunger, there's no passion, there's no desperation because it's comfortable. And we like comfort. That becomes kind of the target for our lives because money represents comfort. So I'm going to play a short video for you. I think it would probably echo an encounter that many of us would probably have with Jesus if he had this conversation with us about our comfort level. Let's go ahead and watch this together. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Comfort, is that something that's become the driving force? I know that's one of the things that convicts me the most when I read through this passage in my own life. So I don't want to be uncomfortable. So I make decisions based on what can bring me the most comfort in life. And then I do that, I miss out on the opportunities that might require some discomfort on my part so that God might use me for a greater purpose in my life. Third question is, will you surrender your status? Now, some of you are thinking, status? I'm not that rich compared to somebody else. I don't have status. I don't, I don't have some level of... Of, of rapport in society where people look up to me and I'm really something. All of us have a level of status compared to somebody else. And according to how much money that we have or the job that we have that somehow puts us in certain categories, that's what we classify wealthy or rich or middle class. It all puts us kind of at a status level or, or lower income. We use all these different terms to describe people according to their money status because money dictates kind of the way we operate. It dictates where you live. It dictates the car that you drive, and it usually dictates the social circle that you find yourself in. So we all have this sense of status, and we realize if we don't have this this amount of money, we won't have that same status. Or if we wish that we had more, we would have better status, and that becomes the focus because money represents that to you and I. And that's when Jesus comes to us, and regardless of how wealthy we are compared to anybody else, he asks us all the same question. Are you willing to surrender everything to me? Are you willing to give up the one thing that allows you to be in the status that you're at right now, accepted and acknowledged by other people at the same economic level? Are you willing to give that up in order to follow me? I'm going to read a a portion, a small section of, of a book called The Hole in Our Gospel by a man named Richard Stearns. Richard Stearns is the head of World Vision. And a number of years ago, when he was approached by World Vision, they came after him. Very successful CEO, businessman, had never worked in the relief organization world at all. And they approached him, and they asked him if he would be willing to come and to lead World Vision. And he writes in this book, which, by the way, if you want to get the book, it's a very good book. It's his own journey about how God worked in him, a very wealthy man, to embrace overseeing World Vision and really working towards helping people who deal with issues of poverty. So, but he, he, he shares this encounter when he's basically, he's on a phone interview, initial phone interview with World Vision with someone who's interviewing and they're asking him some questions. And so it begins with this. This is the question that he's asked. He's, the person asked him, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Ouch. What a terrible question to ask someone. What a rude question to ask someone. And what an uncon- uncomfortable question for someone to answer. That was one question that really put me at a loss for words. I think there was a long pause, and then I slowly started to answer, well, yes, I do want to be open to God's will, but, and you see, as though, uh, as, as I thought about my answer, there was a lot of buts, but I'm not qualified. You don't really want me to do this job, but I don't know anything about global poverty or relief or development or fundraising. Surely this would be a huge mistake, and then there were more selfish buts. 
but I have worked more than 20 years to get to the top of the corporate ladder. You can't be suggesting that I give all this up. This would be career suicide. But I love being the CEO of Lennox, and I am on the brink of making a lot of money. We'll be set for life in just a few years. But we live in a 200-year-old stone farmhouse with 10 bedrooms on 5 acres. Wouldn't you like that? It's the house of our dreams that we've waited for years for. You can't expect us to sell it. But what about my brand-new company car, the Royal Blue Jaguar XK8? I'd have to give that back. But I have five kids who love their friends in their school, and we would have to move them to the other side of the country. And how could we put them all through college on a World Vision salary? And what is the salary anyway? Then deeper still, where my greatest fear is spiritual emotion, emotional. But Lord, I don't want to do this. This will wreck my life. Don't send me to the poor, Lord, anywhere but there. But I can't do this, God. Not poverty, slums, hunger, disease, dying children, grieving parents. Don't ask me to go there, Lord. Not into so much pain and suffering and despair. In those few seconds, all those issues flashed through my head because, you see, in my heart, I knew it was at stake. God was asking me that day to choose He was challenging me to decide what kind of disciple I was going to be. Two decades earlier, I had bet the farm on Jesus Christ, and now he was asking me to hand over the deed. What was the most important thing in my life? He wanted to know. Was it my career, my financial security, my family, my stuff? Or was I committed to following him regardless of the cost, no matter what? I admire Richard Stern because of his ability to give all of that up. Because he believed that God had something greater than wealth, greater than status, greater than a successful career, greater than a car and a house, and all the things that we clamor for. And watch world vision be transformed by someone who was transformed by Jesus. You don't have to be Richard Stern, and you don't have to be the CEO of Lennox in order to have the same story, because whatever God asks us to give up is the same amount of value to us as a millionaire. Because it represents that status to you and I. And then the final question to consider as we reflect on this is, will you surrender your dependence? See, money provides for you and I this perception that I don't need anything and I don't need anyone. Because when we reach that one level, it's like, okay, I'm not dependent on anybody or anything. Except we are. We're dependent on money. We're dependent on what that provides for us. Instead of being dependent on God, we are dependent on money. Because really, there is no such thing as independence. Because we're all dependent on something. But the question is, are we willing to surrender that dependence from being dependent on money to being dependent on Jesus? That's a scary proposition. To be absolutely dependent on Him. It's what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. It says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. It's dependence either way. We're dependent because we're dependent on because we have a lot or we're dependent because we have nothing. 
there's that dependence that God wants us to, to understand has to be in him. It can't be in anything else. It can't be in anyone else. Our dependence has to be in him. And that's why as this man encountered Jesus, as you and I encountered Jesus, the question that he's asking to the core of who we are is, are you going to surrender to me? Are you going to give everything you have for me? Are you going to daily pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me? That's the question he asks all of us. And I know that the, this, the, the tension that we have is, is what we think we have is tangible and what the world offers us and what, you know, if I just won the lottery, if I just got that big windfall, everything would be great. Opposed to, I don't know, it looks kind of scary, God. I don't know where my next paycheck's going to come from. And it looks like when you choose to follow you, when I read from the scriptures, people went through a lot of suffering and, I don't know, this looks pretty comfortable and nice and secure. Yeah, that looks pretty insecure and, I don't know, undetermined. I don't know if I like the look of that. That's what Jesus offers you and I. This one leads to a life that ends in this one. This one lives, leads to a life that lasts forever. But we hear the clamoring and the noise and the attention and I have to have all my stuff. And let me tell you, living in Simi Valley... We are intoxicated with our comfort. I know it. I am a native Southern Californian. I know the rhythm of life in Southern California. And I know even after about six months, picking up the rhythm of life in Simi Valley, we have to fight against the culture of comfort and ease and security and wealth. Because God has something bigger for you and I. It's not absolutely impossible. It can't happen that a rich person can enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because nothing's impossible with God. But I don't want to make it very hard on him. <laughs> I don't want to make it difficult for him to be enamored with wealth. But I want you for you and I for just a few moments just to think about what would your life look like if you didn't have whatever great or small amount of money that you have to fall back on? What if you had to rely on Jesus? How does that change the way we live our life? In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the twelve, he told them this crazy thing. He sends them on a journey and says, take nothing with you. I mean, when we go on vacation, we pack like, you know, a U-Haul worth of stuff, right? He's telling his disciples to go and do these amazing things, but don't take any food, don't take resource, don't take that stuff with you. Why did Jesus say that? Because he wanted to see them understand that their only place of dependence was on him. He gave them authority to cast out demons and to, to heal people and do these amazing things, but he also gave them the resource they needed for their life. Israel lived for 40 years in the desert. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from, so what did God do? He provided manna. He provided quail. God sustained them. He even sustained them to the point where their clothing, after 40 years in the desert, didn't wear out. How does that work? It's because when you have nothing left... It's the first time in our life that we realize that God is all we need. It is. Because when you and I are so dependent on God, life changes dramatically. Because we have to look to Him. Because we have to be dependent. Anybody seen The Amazing Race? One of my favorite TV shows. So part of that journey is people journey around the world 
is they get a little bit of money at the beginning of each leg of the race, and they have to do different things, and they have to catch flights to fly here and there and do everything. And sometimes they'll get to the end of a leg, and it's a non-elimination leg, which means if they're last normally, you get eliminated from the race. Your race is over. You're done. But there's that one chance that it's a leg that's not an elimination leg. Like, so you get to the end, and then there's Phil standing there on the mat, and he says, I'm pleased to inform you this is a non-elimination. And they're like, oh, but when you start the next leg, you have to give me all your money. So now you're in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, and now you don't have any money, and you have to find your way of how do I get food, how do I get taxi fare, how do I get to the airport, how do I get out of here? It's amazing to watch the transformation when those teams lose their money. They'll do anything. Why? Because they're desperate. They're desperate. They'll beg. They'll try to start doing something to gain money. They'll dance. They'll sing. They'll do something that looks absolutely stupid. Why? Because they now realize they have no safety net. They have no comfort. They have no security. They don't know the language. And they're desperate because they have a need. If you and I were to live our lives totally dependent on Jesus, not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but we would pray more. We would worship more. We would serve more. We would do less things that bring us comfort and security and ease, and we would do do more things that maybe we had to encounter pain and suffering and persecution. Why? Because we were so dependent on Jesus, we have no other option. And that's the hunger that we lose, and that's the hunger this man has lost. And that's why when Jesus said, hey, if you really want to follow me, if you really want eternal life, if you want to understand what this is all about, you've got to sell what you have because it's blinding you to the reality of what it means to follow me. Now, I don't know how this works out in your life. I can only answer to what the Holy Spirit says to me. But that's the question all of us have to ask. God, what are you saying to me about this encounter with this man that's the same encounter that he would have with us today? As we try to embrace a good and moral life and we acknowledge a good God and we try to do all the good things and God says, no, 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 you're missing it. That's wonderful and that's great, but you should do that not to earn favor, but you do that because you love me and you want to live a right life, but you understand that ultimately you have to live fully surrendered to me. I want us to understand something. This is important. In that story, what Jesus said, when he said, you still lack one thing. He said, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor. And then he said, then follow me. Why didn't Jesus say, okay, hey, follow me. And as you're following me, just start unloading your stuff. You can have me and your stuff. Jesus was giving him an ultimatum. It's your money and your stuff, or it's me. You can't have both. You can't. That's why I said, in order for you to really follow me, you have to surrender first. And so this morning, I want to encourage you that, that maybe God's just saying to you, you know, you've come to a point of salvation. You've understood God's grace. You realize that you're not perfect, and you can't be good enough, and you can't reach the standard of perfection. And that's why we all fall in the mercy of God, and that's why we celebrate communion, because at the cross... God covers our sin by His grace. But if we embrace that fully, that we are dead in our sins, we have nothing going for ourselves, the only life we have is because of the cross, then I own nothing, I have no rights, I have no right to do what I want to do, my money is not mine, my stuff is not mine, it all belongs to Him. So I've got my salvation, 
but am I really following Jesus with everything that I have? Am I really entering the kingdom of him? Am I really living the life that God created me to live, not of comfort and ease and financial success, but of really being on the edge of what his kingdom is doing and being desperate for him to work in me and through me to touch other people? That's the question we have to answer for ourselves this morning. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? We're going to just reflect for a few moments before we conclude. Just with your eyes closed, I want you to to understand this passage, this message can be taken and twisted to make it feel like, you know what, I just, I'm not saved because I have money. Or I'm not saved because I'm comfortable. Or I need to do better so I can be saved. That is the opposite of this message. The truth of what Jesus is trying to get at for this young man and the truth of what he's trying to get at all of us is that Jesus wants us to surrender. He wants us to give up. He wants us to lay everything down. Not so that you and I get a gold star at the end, but because he knows the way that he has designed you and I to fully be alive, to fully exist the way he purposed us is when we are dependent on him. Because when Jesus created, when the Father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, at the moment of creation, created the world and created the garden that Adam and Eve were in, Adam and Eve were totally dependent on God. And He provided everything for them. And because then they wanted to take it on themselves, and they wanted to, in a sense, do it their way and provide for themselves, they lost what God had for them. So I want you to understand what God desires for you and I is once again to be in that place of dependence where life can be described as good, not because we have been good, but because God is good. And when we surrender our lives to Him, we experience the goodness of why we're alive. And if I'm describing for you where you're at right now, then I want you just to begin to surrender and just tell God, I, I give up everything. And then I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to pray in a moment, we'll conclude, but I'm going to encourage you this week that you ask the Lord, what does it mean to surrender everything to you? What is it, if you were to encounter me, Jesus, that you would point in my life and you would say, yeah, but you still lack one thing. That one thing is going to cost you. That one thing is going to blind you. That one thing is going to control you and it's going to make you dependent and you're going to miss out on what I have for you. Lord Jesus, we know that your spirit is faithful and active and alive and working in us right now. And so I ask that, Lord Jesus, you would speak to us about our lives. And Lord, first and foremost, I want to pray against shame and guilt that would somehow take the place of conviction and passion to follow you, that would drive us to do something out of being compelled or somehow forced to doing something we don't want to do would be replaced by a desire to give all of ourselves for you, the one who gave his life for us, the one who loves us more than anything in this world, that, Jesus, we would surrender fully to you because you have life for us that truly is abundant, life that is far beyond the level of what we have, life that truly has no limits, but, Lord, we know that life is found in surrendering ourselves to you. So help us this week, Lord Jesus, to live that out so that we might fully understand what it means to be alive. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your words in your name. Amen.